The Gospel reading today comes from John 19, verse 38, to chapter 20, verse 32. Later, Joseph of Arimathea asked Pilate for the body of Jesus. Now Joseph was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly because he feared the Jewish leaders. With Pilate's permission, he came and took the body away. He was accompanied by Nicodemus, the man who earlier had visited Jesus at night. Nicodemus bought a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds. Taking Jesus' body and the two of them wrapped it with the spices in strips of linen. This was in accordance with the Jewish burial customs. At the place where Jesus was crucified there was a garden and in the garden a new tomb in which no one had ever been laid. Because it was the Jewish day of preparation and since the tomb was nearby, they laid Jesus there. Early on the first day of the week, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb and saw that the stone had been removed from the entrance. So she came running to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one Jesus loved, and said, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we don't know where they have put him. So Peter and the other disciple started for the tomb. Both were running, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. He bent over and looked in at the strips of linen lying there, but did not go in. Then Simon Peter came along behind him and went straight into the tomb. He saw the strips of linen lying there as well as the cloth that had been wrapped around Jesus' head. The cloth was still lying in its place separate from the linen. Finally, the other disciple, who had reached the tomb first, also went inside. He saw and believed. They still did not understand from scripture that Jesus had to rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to where they were staying. Now Mary stood outside the tomb crying. As she wept, she bent over to look into the tomb and saw two angels in white seated where Jesus' body had been, one at the head and the other at the foot. They asked her, Woman, why are you crying? They have taken my Lord away, she said, and I don't know where they have put him. At this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there, but she did not realise that it was Jesus. He asked her, Woman, why are you crying? Who is it you are looking for? Thinking he was a gardener, she said, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have put him, and I will get him. Jesus said to her, Mary... She turned toward him and cried out in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. Jesus said, Do not hold on to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. Go instead to my brothers and tell them I am ascending to my Father and your Father and to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went to the disciples with the news. I have seen the Lord, she told them that he had said these things to her. 
On the evening of that first day of the week, when the disciples were together with the doors locked for fear of the Jewish leaders, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. After he said this, he showed them his hands and sighed. The disciples were overjoyed when they saw the Lord. Again, Jesus said, Peace be with you. So the Father, as the Father has sent me, I am sending you. And with that he breathed on them and said, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive anyone's sins, their sins are forgiven. If you do not forgive them, they are not forgiven. Now Thomas, also known as Didymus, one of the twelve, was not with the disciples when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, We have seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my finger where the nails were and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. A week later, his disciples were in the house again and Thomas was with them. Though the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here. See my hands? Reach out your hand and put it into my side. Stop doubting and believe. Thomas said to him, My Lord and my God. Then Jesus told them, Because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples which are not recorded in this book. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Well, good morning. Christ is risen. That's how you flush the Anglicans in the room out. (laughs) Let me pray that God would give us understanding of this wonderful part of his word and a belief in the resurrection of Jesus. Lord, Heavenly Father, we do thank you that you've gathered us together today as your people. We thank you that we can celebrate this time together, that we can remember that Christ is risen and he is risen indeed. And yet, Lord, there are times when we doubt. And so, Lord, this morning we pray that we might not doubt our beliefs and believe our doubts. We pray instead, Lord, that we might doubt our doubts and believe our beliefs and know that Jesus is risen. Amen. Each year, the Oxford English Dictionary publishes its word of the year. You know, its sort of summary of the the mood or the the preoccupations of of the past year. And it's always been a kind of innocent and fun little thing. Uh, In 2013, the word of the year was selfie. In 2014, it was vape. Uh, If you do not know what that means, blessed and happy are you. In 2015, it was emoji. It wasn't the word emoji, it was an actual emoji. You know, an actual little picture that people kind of stick in their text messages. You know, it's always been a bit of fun. Uh, But then in 2016, it all turned very serious. And it's actually continued to be serious ever since then, actually. Uh, In 2016, the word of the year was post-truth. Post-truth. Uh, meaning uh, relating to or denoting circumstances in which objective facts are less influential in shaping public opinion than appeals to emotion and personal belief. 
And it's no surprise that the word most often attached to post-truth continues to be the word politics, post-truth politics, particularly given the election results of that year that surprised so many. Uh, Now that people make decisions based on, uh, you know, things like emotion and personal belief comes as a shock to no one. But in many ways, it's the bigger kind of, it's bigger than that, isn't it? Uh, It's rapidly becoming the general characteristic of our age that truth no longer matters. That truth has become an irrelevant concept. It's not just that we disagree over truth. It just doesn't matter anymore. The idea that there is some sort of truth that's outside of me and that's outside of you and that both of us need to shape our life around that truth, well, that just doesn't seem to matter anymore. There's a reality that we're increasingly having to come to accept, that we're all believers now. In the social media sea of differing opinions, we all choose who we will listen to. We all choose who we will trust and who we will believe. And we call that, if we call anything, truth. Now, why do I even mention that? Why do I even talk about that on on a day such as today? And I I mention it because it gives people another reason not to believe in the resurrection of Jesus that John chapter 20 so clearly points towards. Now there are two common ways to doubt the resurrection of Jesus. One's the old way, you know, the conventional way not to believe, to say the dead do not rise. There are fixed There are closed natural laws that kind of make our our world understandable and manageable. And these laws do not allow the claim that someone can live forever. Not Jesus and not anyone else. A solely scientific understanding of our universe doesn't allow for resurrections. And of course now there is another way in our brave new post-truth world. Not a, a natural law outside of me but more an internal feeling. Uh, a personal law that says, I don't have to adopt anything that I don't want to adopt. I don't have to adapt to anything in my life that I don't like. A truth for me is whatever I want to believe, whatever I find acceptable or helpful. Anything else is to be, to be rejected, no matter the evidence that is presented for it. And even if someone could come to me and prove the resurrection of Jesus and prove that it was a historical event, it wouldn't matter if I didn't want it to matter. Another reason to doubt. That's what we have here. Another reason to doubt the truth of the resurrection of Jesus. And not just the truth of the resurrection of Jesus, but even all truth. Another barrier to what the resurrection of Jesus can bring. Because knowing the truth of the resurrection of Jesus is critically important. The resurrection of Jesus is the linchpin upon which the gospel upon which all Christianity rises or falls. It's the Achilles heel of Christianity. If Christ is not raised, says the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 15, then Christianity is false and futile and we are all in our sins. And even in John's Gospel, the resurrection of Jesus is the validation of everything that Jesus has said and taught and done. It's the proof that Jesus is from God the Father, gifted with all his authority and power, and yet has become a man, come in flesh to save us. And that at his crucifixion, he willingly laid down his life as a sacrifice for our sins. 
and that in his resurrection he takes it up again to complete his journey to the Father's side to prepare a place for us to go and to be with him forever. Everything in Christianity, absolutely everything, depends on the resurrection of Jesus. And so that's what I want to talk to you about today. I want to remind you of the truth of the resurrection of Jesus. And not just of its truth, but of why it's a truth that you cannot ignore. So come with me, would you, to to John chapter 19. At first glance, what we read today uh, seems almost antiquated and unsophisticated. Uh, John gives us just a straightforward, factual presentation of the resurrection of Jesus. An empty tomb, a, a list of eyewitnesses. And then in verse 30 and 31, the expectation that we would believe based on these eyewitnesses. But that is to miss the subtlety of what is before us. Uh, It is a simple presentation of the multiple eyewitnesses to the resurrection of Jesus. It's just some of those who saw Jesus risen from the dead. But it's exactly the kind of thing that you would expect eyewitnesses to recount. It's a narrative that's neither overly embellished, uh, nor is it devoid of detail. Uh, So at the risk of retelling the story, come with me to John. And let me just point out to you some of the things that might have easily been missed. Uh, In chapter 19, verse 38, you have Jesus' unexpected undertakers. Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus. They're both secret disciples of Jesus, reminding us of how dangerous it was to be associated with Jesus at this time. They come prepared. And they come with the kind of skill that can only come through repeated practice. These are men who know what it is to see and to handle a dead body. And these men know that Jesus is dead when they wrap his body as well and lay it in a garden tomb. And then on the third day, on the first day of the week, Sunday morning, Mary Magdalene comes very early to the tomb. She saw that the stone is rolled back and immediately she runs to Peter and to the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, which is John's way of talking about himself. And she's deeply upset in verse 2. But she's a sensible woman and she doesn't leap to conclusions. She is not looking for or expecting to find Jesus alive. And so she reaches for the most obvious explanation that someone has moved the body. Peter and John, in their distress, rushed to the tomb as well. That John outran Peter... Uh, Well, it's not important, but it's the kind of thing that you might slip into your gospel just to kind of rib your friend for the rest of of history. Uh, They go inside and they see the grave clothes lying there in verses 6 and 7. The linen cloths for the body just lying there in a heap, but the the wrapping for the head folded neatly in a separate pile. Uh, Again, it's the kind of detail that's unimportant, but that an eyewitness would remember and record. And they saw and they believed. And yet they didn't fully understand, according to verse 9. And so they return home to tell the other disciples. But Mary remains. And it's Mary who first sees the risen Jesus. She's deeply unsettled by the defiling of her beloved, beloved teacher's body. And so she eventually sums up the courage to go inside the tomb and see for herself. And she sees two angels sitting there who seek to comfort her. And again, this is no gullible, no foolish woman. She just wants to know where the body has gone. 
And then she turns around and she comes face to face with Jesus. And at first, she doesn't recognize him because she wasn't expecting him. And so the man she sees, she just sees as an ordinary man and supposes him to be the gardener and carries on with him much the same conversation as she had with the angels. And then in verse 16, Jesus says her name, Mary. And it's a beautiful moment. Recognition comes flooding back to Mary. And I've often wondered, why does Mary so suddenly realise who Jesus is? And maybe it was the warmth and the affection that Jesus had for Mary that all came out in the way that he said her name. How sweet it is to be so known by Jesus, so loved by Jesus, that you can feel it in the way that he says your name. And I wonder if that's the way that we will know Jesus when we see Jesus, by the way that he says our name. And so Mary, I think, embraces him. I think that's how uh, we're meant to interpret verse 17. She probably clings to Jesus. And he gives her a very simple message to pass on, which she does in verse 18. I have seen the Lord. The scene changes. It now becomes later, the evening of the same day. Again, the disciples are gathered together, hiding behind a locked door. Again, like Jesus' unexpected undertakers out of fear of the Jewish authorities. And yet to the risen Jesus, who was so ordinary that he could be mistaken as a gardener, and yet he is so extraordinary that a locked door is no impediment to him. And he comes and stands among them. And his first words to them are peace, just like he promised they would be. And their first response to seeing him risen is overwhelming joy. Uh, Jesus had said to them, a little while and you will no longer see me and then a little while and you will see me again and you will be filled with joy. And here is Jesus fulfilling his own prophecy about himself. And Jesus reminds them what he taught them. That yes, I'm returning to the Father. And that yes, I'm giving you the Holy Spirit, the other counsellor. One by one, Jesus is showing them that all that he has taught them is true now that he has risen again. But there's just one problem. One disciple is missing. Thomas, in verse 24, leading to one of the most wonderful parts of the passage, I think. Uh, Thomas is wonderfully sceptical. For Thomas, the idea that Jesus has risen is just something that is too incredible to be believed. And I think that's something that a lot of people can relate to. I think a lot of people can relate to Thomas. Uh, Thomas is just articulating something that we have all struggled with from time to time. And that is, in our experience, the dead do not rise. And if I am to believe something like that, I'll have to see it for myself. Uh, In fact, uh, Thomas doesn't just want to see, Thomas wants to feel. Thomas wants to kind of stick his hands in the wounds of the Lord Jesus For him, touching would be believing. He wants to be absolutely sure that the Jesus who died is the Jesus who rose again. And so on another occasion, in verse 26, a week later, another locked room, again, Jesus comes and stands amongst them. And again, they are eyewitnesses to his his resurrection. 
And again, it's a replay of almost the last appearing, only now Thomas is present. And Thomas, on seeing the Lord Jesus, is brought to humble belief. He is profoundly changed and he didn't even need to touch Jesus as he claimed. He saw and believed. And therefore he knows that all that Jesus has said is true. And Thomas calls Jesus as he rightfully is, my Lord and my God, the Lord and God of all who believe that Jesus is risen. And this chapter is a profound challenge to those who are sceptical about the resurrection of Jesus, especially the story of Thomas. These are not gullible men and women, desperately searching for something to cling on to. They are sensible, even sceptical people. And they are people who have faithfully recorded all things, even if those things are unflattering or embarrassing, and they've presented them clearly without any embellishment. And these people are people who are transformed by what they saw. People who are made incredibly bold in the face of the real danger that came from being a follower of Jesus. The majority of these eyewitnesses would in the end give up their life. They would die rather than deny what they knew they saw and believed. And even here is John writing it all down, clearly revealing his allegiance to Jesus at great personal risk and wanting to persuade us also. Wanting to challenge us with the eyewitness testimony to the resurrection of Jesus. But there is another challenge to those who would be sceptical about Jesus' resurrection, and that is the lack of any evidence to the contrary. Where are the people who discredited this? Where are the eyewitnesses of those who saw Jesus still dead, still in this or any other tomb? Where are the writings of those who show the disciples to be a a shifty bunch of characters who are only in it for the money? In fact, where are the writings even accusing the disciples of Jesus of such things, let alone proving them? Where is the historical counter evidence to undermine this account? If you have a firm belief that Jesus did not rise from the dead and your only evidence is a blank piece of paper, then all you are left with is the assumption that things like this just can't happen. And that's fine, except here are a whole bunch of people who say that it did. They saw and they believed. And let's face it, no matter the games we play with language, no matter the words that we invent like post-truth, Eyewitness testimony still matters. Truth still matters. And we know it. When the police officer comes to the side of the the car accident and asks, what happened? And you go up to him or her and you say, well, I got here about an hour after it happened, but I, I have an opinion. They will say, go away, stand over there. I want to talk to someone who saw what happened. And when your children have been fighting and you go to them, you'll be offered many opinions on what has happened, but none of them will, you will ask what happened when it comes down to it, when it's something that's really important, and even when it's just an ordinary thing of life, eyewitness testimony matters, truth matters. And so in verse 29, Jesus says to Thomas, 
Because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Jesus is very clear. Incredible things do not have to be seen to be believed. Generations and generations would come who have not exercised trust based on what they have seen, but have trusted based on the testimony of eyewitnesses. And God always intended the resurrection of Jesus to be known through the testimony of the eyewitnesses. There were no tape recordings, there were no photographs, there were no video cameras there that day. But when it happened, God saw that there were eyewitnesses and that Jesus appeared to enough eyewitnesses in enough settings that they were fully convinced that he had risen from the dead and that they could tell others and write it down even for us to read. To God, eyewitness testimony is enough to believe, is a valid warrant for trusting that this happened. God always intended for us to know this way. The resurrection of Jesus is true. But let me finish quickly by telling you why it's a truth that we cannot ignore. We cannot ignore. Because what if the resurrection of Jesus isn't true? Let's just think about that and ponder that for a moment. What if Jesus did not rise from the dead? What would that mean? Well, it would mean that this is indeed a cold and indifferent universe. That God, if he exists, must be far from us at best or our enemy at worst. And we are left with no real resources for understanding any greater meaning in our lives. All our suffering, all our pain, all our hardship become meaningless unless Jesus rose from the dead. All meaning collapses into simply eat, drink and be merry for tomorrow we die and the day after it will be as if we'd never existed. And yet we sense more than that, don't we? We know there's more than that. We certainly live like there's more than that. But if the resurrection of Jesus is true, then life has meaning. God is not only real, but that he loves us. And he loves us enough to send his son to die for us, to bring us forgiveness and peace. And if this is true, there is life, life after Jesus, life after the resurrection of Jesus, life that we can have, life that we can be sure of, life that will last forever. There is real hope both now and into eternity. And that this very passage might be, is written so that we might be numbered amongst those blessed people who believe and having believed, share in eternal life. And that is what we believe. That one day, even though we will lie down and close our eyes in death, we know like Jesus that we will open them again and we will see him and we will know him by the way he says our name. Now what Jesus died to offer us 
what we can have when we believe. What it means if all this is true. This all makes the resurrection of Jesus a truth we cannot ignore. And so the challenge is, do you believe? 2019 is a new year. I have no idea what the word for the year will be this year. But what I do know is that today is a new day and it's Easter day. It's a new day to stake your life on the eyewitness testimony of those who saw Jesus risen from the dead. It's an ideal day to start afresh, to believe and to receive the life that Jesus offers. And let it fill you as it fills me and has filled so many with immense gratitude to Jesus and a deep and abiding joy in him that I will see him and that I will live with him forever. Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for Jesus, that he did die for us, a sacrifice for our sins, to bring us forgiveness and hope. And we thank you that he rose again and that around him are a great cloud of eyewitnesses that saw him and spoke with him and that we can trust them. We can trust that he rose from the dead and that we can be blessed as those who believe in him and having believed in him receive eternal life.